0: Welcome to 050. I'm your host Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. We have 29 million homes in the UK and they account for 18% of greenhouse gas emissions and they could all be way more efficient. And right now we're wishing they were. Energy bills are increasing by 50%, oil is heading towards $120 a barrel and Europe's energy security has never looked worse following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. UK fracking is back on the table and Germany is looking at firing up coal-fired power stations again. All bad news for the climate emergency. Much of this could have been avoided if we had acted sooner to decarbonise homes, businesses and cities. And my guest of this episode of 050 will show us how we can do just this. Sarah Daly is Associate Director in the Turner and Townsend Sustainability Team and with a wealth of experience in urban sustainability she is currently working with the government to facilitate them deploy a £3.8 billion social housing development fund. Welcome to 050 Sarah it is a pleasure and an honour to have you on the show.
1: Not at all my absolute pleasure and thank you for inviting me.
0: Brilliant. Well, let's get into it. So why is social housing important? How much of those 29 million homes are social housing? And what are the government doing to decarbonise them?
1: Okay, well, it's a it's a fascinating area in terms of proportion of the market. It's actually quite small. It's probably only about four four and a half million properties. It's been a declining number, partly because new build hasn't kept up in that in that area in the social housing uh, arena for various reasons, but also because of right to buy. So the the actual proportion of fully owned uh, social homes has actually decreased over time. But the reason it's incredibly important is because of all the Uh, different tenures in housing so obviously got social housing uh, private rented sector and the owner occupied sector yeah the only one that you can really i suppose consolidate into one community is actually the social housing area so it's become a real focal point uh, for the government in terms of allowing us I suppose to sort of look at obviously a very important area because there are an awful lot of people in in those homes um, where it hasn't necessarily had the investment that it might have needed over time uh, but also because it allows us to prove the market um, it, you know look at innovation, look at different methodologies for for working on a community basis, and really get to the stage where, through the social housing network, we can actually sort of create viable supply chains and stimulate the skills and uh, resources that will be required then to deal with other tenures, both domestic and non-domestic. So it's a really important point
0: so it's quite a nice win-win there because we can sort of use it as a flagship project and 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 put some innovative um, technologies in there at the same time as decarbonising that really important sort of uh, tenure sector.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's nice. so, but, well, in fact, actually, there are more people, I think, in fuel poverty and private rented than in socially rented. Right. But even so, it's uh, obviously the, the private rented sector is very fragmented, so the fact that we can actually get at a Um, a cohort of uh, registered providers social landlords and actually work with them to upgrade their stock means that we can make um, a huge difference in that area and certainly take uh, many tens or hundreds of thousands of people sadly as will now probably be happening with the energy crisis out of energy poverty or potential energy poverty as quickly as we can
0: and do you think we've just left it too late to get to this point now that we've sort of um haven't really done much with have uh, sort of privatised the energy market and we've gone for wherever we can pick up cheap energy and now it's all sort of bitten us in the bum. Is it is it have we left it too late or can we turn it around?
1: Yeah, we can definitely turn this around. It's going to need a really concerted effort though, right across the piece. So uh, you know, we mentioned innovation, but we need a lot more innovation won't we yeah. you know? quite slow in that area but actually there are an awful lot of things which are just very very fundamental basics uh you know we talk about fabric first which is just making sure that uh, the buildings have the, the basic requirements of being as airtight as they possibly can be sort of well insulated and well ventilated and once you get that sort of combination then you can layer um, other interventions on top like you know, again removing properties from the gas network or yeah. um, you know, by, by using heat pumps or uh, using district heating solutions where appropriate, and those sorts of things can obviously then make a, a great difference. So and another benefit, but you've got to get the, the fundamental aspects of the building performing in order for those elements then to do their job.
0: And it sounds good. I mean, decar- decarbonising cities and decarbonised homes—it's a nice, it's a nice phrase. And is it literally just that in terms of retrofitting insulation, cleaner technology, heat pumps, hydrogen boilers in the future? Is that—is that what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, although uh, we're probably unlikely to see hydrogen boilers um, from a domestic point of view. There's been a lot of modelling done, and it looks like it's just going to be too complicated. And. Right. You know, there are safety issues with hydrogen. It's quite a volatile gas to have. you sort of moving around in, in sort of domestic situations. Yeah. It's unlikely to be a silver bullet, although it probably will work well for industrial applications and uh, transport. But it's... Uh, so in terms of housing, uh, I mean, there's some really interesting proposals that people like Dale Vince and Ecotricity are putting forward for um, a green gas alternative which if that were to come through then you could use the existing network and you could use the existing boilers uh, I'm not sure if that's actually going to be followed up but other than that it probably is going to end up defaulting to heat pumps but heat pumps get a bit of a bad rap mainly because you know again the, the technology when it first came out was a bit clunky yeah. uh, and uh, people's expectations of it were, you know, they they had high expectations, but they found the performance disappointing. But that was often to do with specification rather than the product itself. So we're now into sort of, you know, increasingly sophisticated generations of heat pumps and to the right buildings. And if they're deployed in the right way, they are incredibly effective.
0: And with heat pumps generally for these retrofit technologies, but let's talk about heat pumps as an example. Is it to the point where solar was 20 years ago, where EVs were before Tesla came along, where actually we shouldn't write it off because what we're building at the moment is quite early stage and it's just going to get better and better?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a a really important point. We've got a, uh, as with everything, there's an innovation curve, but also there'll be demand led. I mean, we're in a really position at the moment because there is so much demand for heat pumps and we're uh, falling well short in terms of capacity to deliver at the rate at which the market wants them. So that's keeping the prices high. But once we get those economies of scale and once the the new movers into the market can start to see that there is actually a viable future for those technologies, there will be again innovation will get pushed through as it always does and the prices will come down and it will all feel a bit more uh, viable i think as an alternative
0: and with heat pumps i mean are we is it a technology that can be bolted on the side or, or do you have to look at it within an entire retrofit project in terms of how they i guess how they work i don't know
1: yeah, I mean, they they absolutely have to be part of a, a sort of full concept, really. So we talk about um, a whole house retrofit plan and, and even with the social uh, housing, where there are landlords who've got tens or even hundreds of thousands of properties, they still have to do a plan for every single individual property, even if yeah. it's- same archetype as you know if you've got a row of terraces you still have to do a plan building by building because different things have happened to them over the years and it's really important to do that it's really important to actually follow a very methodical analytical data-based process to understand what that house is and how it performs and what sort of interventions you need to do and get sequencing of them right so you know it it seems like um i think a lot of people love the idea of you know technological solutions and being able to bypass but actually we have to reduce load first and you can't do load unless you've got the performance of the building right Uh, so we have to start from those very fundamental points
0: and is it still i mean that's an awful lot of work in an old building is it is it still economic cost-effective to retrofit or we better off knocking the building down and starting again?
1: Uh, it's almost never more cost-effective to knock a building down and start again. So yeah. really, right, and again, it doesn't really matter what the tenure of the property is or whether it's a dwelling or a, a commercial building of some sort. Almost every building can be moved. And there's some fantastic systems which have been developed to off-site, panelized, um Prefabricated systems, so you can you can effectively just sort of um, re-coat a building, you know, with a with a high-performance um, external wall insulation facade, uh, which. Takes away a lot of the issues, and again, if you get the ventilation strategy uh, correct internally as well, you can really improve the performance of you know the the leakiest of buildings. Um, can be absolutely transformed uh, visually and and from a comfort and health and well-being perspective. So, if you talk about unit prices, it can sound quite scary. It can be up to about forty thousand pounds to completely retrofit a property, and yeah. you can imagine people are thinking you know multiply that by four and a half million uh, social homes, and that's an awful lot of budget. However, those homes need to be improved anyway. A lot of them have been neglected over a long period of time because there have been other priorities, You know, maybe things like kitchens and bathrooms, et cetera, and uh, decent homes. But um, as we go forward, I think people's expectations of what a good building is and what a, a healthy home is will change. It's just that we've been kind of used to our cronky old <laughs> Yeah. properties we've had to date. But as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, the energy crisis has has brought this to a head really. I think people have realised that actually if they can use less energy overall, it's not only better for the planet, it's better for their wallets. And uh, you know, they, they will also find that they're in healthier, healthier buildings and healthier environments generally.
0: And has that on the retrofit side of things, has the um, obviously the horrific tragedy at Grandpa, is that... Change the way that we look at retrofit. I mean, hopefully, it, and I'm certain it will be now safer. But has that slowed things down? Have we have we got through that now in terms of the retrofit of it? And, and are we are we in a sort of better place from a understanding?
1: Yeah, we are. And it, you know, you're absolutely right. It's it's awful that it takes a tragedy like that to actually focus minds. But because external wall insulation is such an important part of retrofit strategy for many older properties uh you know you're instantly talking about something which is a cladding based solution so yes it's absolutely imperative you have to get it right and not only on high-rise buildings you know nobody wants a a a fatality happening because of failures in in, um, wall insulation again. So I think we're, um, you know, the the lessons have been learnt. There are very uh, rigorous processes in place now. Uh, There's a standard called uh, PAS2035, which um, ensures a retrofit designer and coordinator have actually gone through every aspect of the programme and they have to sign it all off. So they're arm's length from any of the supply chain, uh, which is, we realise, is one of the issues Within uh, Grenfell, there just wasn't that independent evaluation of what was being recommended, uh, and that's where you know, things literally slipped through the cracks. So I think we've got, probably got beyond that. I mean, it has twenty thirty as the constructor's standard and twenty thirty five as the implementer's standard. It's it's onerous. There's an awful lot to take on board. But actually, you know, we've been running. Masterclasses and uh, webinars and uh, all sorts of training events yep. since last summer, and people are embracing it. You know, within you know within the market and within the systems, um, and I think actually they're welcoming that rigor. They're w- welcoming the fact that they actually have to do things well, and because of those standards are being set so high it's making it much less likely that you're going to get any sort of cowboy interventions and you know we've got to stop this getting into you know people can see that there's money in something uh it's very easy to actually attract the wrong sort of um suppliers
0: so there is a lot of money i mean it's 4.8 billion in the uh social house uh, accelerator fund are you looking for match funding in that or is that purely a budget that needs to or is going to be spent on improving um, the carbon impact of social housing?
1: Yeah, well, it's actually 3.8 billion up until 2030. Um, The way it worked in the first wave of funding uh, for the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund, and there are some other funds uh, Mm -hmm. like Hug and Lad and other funds that are operating as well, this particular fund, first round, it was a two-thirds grant from the government. So social housing providers or local authorities had to find a third. But for most of them, that was that was a very welcome contribution to what otherwise would have been quite an oner- onerous burden for them. So the ones who were already ahead of the curve um, had gone through there. Uh, their strategy; they knew what they were doing and when they were going to do it, and and the funding became available at the right moment for them. For others, it's been you know a little bit of a catch up game, and they're trying yeah. to get to the right level of skill and understanding to be able to put together you know complex programs. Because retrofits actually very different to normal house um, maintenance, you know, routine maintenance or even normal. Yeah. Up- you
0: know, that so that so their maintenance teams won't necessarily have the skills in the in the organisation to do that retrofit anyway. So it's a case of bringing in an entire team to do that.
1: Well, yeah, to a certain extent. Although that's that's really what myself and my team have have been doing. So um, I've been learning. Uh, sorry, leading the learning and development program, which has been. Yeah. Uh, designed to actually support uh, asset managers and other people within housing providers to upskill and understand the range of things they need to do technically and operationally in order to successfully bid for the grant funding. And we've got other colleagues who've been putting together some one-to-one bid support so they can work directly with the organisations and again, help uh, ensure that they're successful once they get to the bid stage.
0: And that sounds like a massive undertaking because there are many more social housing organizations to think than there are the 380 local councils or whatever we've got is that is that the case
1: yeah um this particular program the shdf uh, is england only i think within that area we've got around 1400 registered who are a mix between uh, social landlords and local authorities uh, and there's Almos, the um, local authority, arms length organisations. So there is a mixture there. As with a lot of things, that, that Pareto probably ap- applies, and that eighty percent of the ownership, of the ownership through social landlords of the properties, is probably within the top sort of twenty percent of uh, organisations. But we're really keen to actually democratize access to this funding so it's really important that the smaller providers and the smaller charities and there's some arms houses and all sorts of little organizations yeah. we feel excluded from this sort of funding because um it might you know they might not have the dedicated staff and resource to do it so we're really encouraging consortium bids that was actually mandatory for the first round but it won't be going forward uh, in all probability but it makes a lot of sense for Uh, smaller or speciality uh, social landlords like ones who've got um, a lot of rural properties for example they face quite different challenges because you know they might be quite disparate in their locations and you know you don't get the same uh, ability to to, to get your supply chains together if you've got uh, remote locations. So there's all sorts of ways that we're trying to support the market to make sure that as many organisations can access funding as possible.
0: Is there an organisation that's then following up your, because you're almost like in a Kickstarter situation because you're saying this is how we're going to improve the input carbon footprint of social housing. And then is there a follow-up organisation or somebody that's saying actually all of this knowledge can then transfer over to the private sector who may well have uh, social tenants or low-income tenants and then also to the general sort of home ownership tenure?
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it's not directly part of our remit, but it's it's a subtext, if you like, and we're already yeah. having these conversations and looking at how we can start developing knowledge bases and sort of longer term strategic thinking. So we're already starting to think this programme, if it's going to run till 2030, what does it need to look like at each iteration? So we're not necessarily just led from bid window to bid window in a very short term way we want to encourage the market to think longer term uh, but the reason it's really important is um and i, and I say this I, I speak at a lot of conferences to social housing providers and very yeah. often you can see them sitting there like rabbits in the headlights. <laughs> something else we've got to do and i just say look you know you guys are the heroes you know we're, we're creating and improving the market yeah um, and what happens in this area. And it's really important for local authorities as well to think broadly. So again, we're starting to do some work around what local authority economic development departments need to do, what the local enterprise partnerships need to do and how they need to work with uh, further education and um, higher education to start thinking much more strategically about skill sets that are required. I think we need something like 400,000 new retrofit uh, skills in the marketplace over the next few years so, wow yeah so there's so
0: a huge huge opportunity for jobs as well
1: yeah absolutely and as this starts i mean one of my frustrations i suppose with both the private rented and the home ownership market is again we haven't got that mass understanding of what a good home is about and why you should want to do it so yeah one of the conversations i've been having a lot recently is um you know we need to put more pressure back onto RICS which have been trying to do over the last few years unsuccessfully so far, say <laughs> so they have to get um, a correlation between the EPC of a property and the valuation. Yeah. At the moment there isn't that link. So you can have two ident- and, uh, identical homes next to each other, and one could be F-rated and the other one could be A-rated, and there wouldn't really be a difference in the value of the property if everything else was was equal. And that's yeah. Easy, Really, because, the you know, the, the experience and the cost effectiveness of living in a, you know, highly insulated property, it might not aesthetically look any different from the inside. And in fact, it might look, uh, you know, you could have a swanky kitchen and bathroom in the poor yep. performing ha- house, which could make it look better than it is. But we need to get to that stage. And that, I think, will motivate landlords and homeowners because they'll see there's a genuine return on investment.
0: And is that EPS data going on the land registry? So is it something that can be seen as sort of a central how we're progressing from a central perspective?
1: Yeah, it's, um, yes, and and in fact, there's some incredible software that can actually uh, map on a, well, down to a house basis, actually, but there's all sorts of uh, software tools that are available that have sort of imported all of that EPC data, and then they can look at various other data sets to sort of map out. So it, you, you can actually get, uh, I mean, it's the sort of thing motivated individuals might want to yeah. do, couple of hundred pounds to sort of you know you know get a survey done on their property pull in that existing data and and get an individual house plan uh, but there's some great organizations like cozy homes oxfordshire is a really good example of a, you know a, a, an organization that's that's sorted itself out on a countywide wide basis and they're now saying we're your go-to team who will provide you with that you know independent evaluation of your home and help you to Think about finance and think about how you sequence interventions, how you find trusted suppliers, all of those sorts of things. So, again, we need that to happen all over the country, really.
0: And I think this is really going to start to happen I mean, it's really interesting for the listeners because it's sort of people go, Well, I'm not going to do that. And it's expensive to do the build work and everything. But the price of energy now is just, it's becoming imperative that we need to insulate our homes and work towards that in a better way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because obviously Insulate Britain as a, as a group got so much bad press because of the disruption. But actually, yeah. when people did stop to listen to their message, they went, like, oh, my God, yeah, that's, you know, what they're saying is just so, such common sense, of course, yeah. to prioritise insulation. And it is pretty much the unsexiest thing you can think about doing to that house. <laughs> it same- really is. Exciting things to do
2: yeah.
1: even down to windows and doors you can see you know it's all visible um and so therefore it's no surprise that it, it's it is the poor relation in terms of what gets people excited with a property and we often talk about eco bling you know the amount of people who are very keen to get uh, solar panels or uh, an electric car all the sorts of things that make them feel like they're doing the right thing to the planet but they could yeah. still be really leaky properties that are actually expending considerably more energy than they're saving so it isn't actually the right thing to do we have to start off with the basics
0: and are we building new houses to a high enough level or are we sort of is the, is the tap still dripping
1: yeah, it's really difficult. There's there's all sorts of issues there. I mean, obviously, frustratingly, because we should have had zero carbon homes by 2016 as a mandatory requirement. And and um, that national house builders lobbied very strongly against that and said it was going to be too complicated and too expensive, etc. Well, they're now, you know, getting very close to having to do that. But,
0: um, but, wow, so that, but that was like uh, six years ago. Yeah, and and, and and is that something that we've missed or was it never mandated to get to zero carbon homes?
1: Well, it, it was originally brought in uh, and it, and we, we got so far down the track and I think most local authorities have probably got to, um, it was Code for Sustainable Homes, They pro- most of them probably got to Code 3 or 4, 6 being zero carbon. So we were progressing really, really well before that mandate was removed and some local authorities did keep it in place and they have that ability to be able to define um, local targets. Uh, so again, there is a, an element of it which is up to them where they don't have to leave it to a government mandate. But what tends to happen on a local level and there's huge pressure on new build is that local authorities want to try and get a balance between making sure they get the right level of additional housing coming through. I think the difficulty for homeowners is, is you know, you could you could buy a brand new property now, which has to be retrofitted in the next few years. Is. Now that's criminal. You know, we shouldn't yeah. be that. We shouldn't be allowing that to happen. And in any other aspect, I suppose, of consumer protection, you you wouldn't, you know, you'd make sure it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but we're going to be passing on the liability to new homeowners if their homes aren't performing. And the other thing which is a real issue. Crazy. Yeah, that the national house builders are well aware of, but again, bypass is um, the performance gap. So they know they can model a, a property uh, and it can have on paper a certain EPC, but it might be well below that in, in practice when it's actually built. So the data that's actually uh, presented is very different to the uh, real performance data. This just
0: this, this, this smacks of the sort of uh, Volkswagen and the diesel tailpipe scandal all over again
1: it is it's really similar and there are lots and lots of um you know small groups who have been trying to get together and and be heard in the space but because it's not life-threatening there's nothing sort of dramatic about it it's just you know the lack of performance it's yeah. not really taken as seriously as it should be but you know if you spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on a home you know you you deserve for it to be you know to perform as built you know it should be I, you know, again, the phrase I always use is you've got more consumer protection buying a, a prawn sandwich than you have buying a, a house that costs half a million pounds. You know, if the prawn sandwich doesn't live up to expectation, you get an instant refund. You, know, yeah. you have very little recourse if you buy a property and and it doesn't perform uh, You know, in the way it says on the tin.
0: And it is extraordinary. it's extraordinary. There's probably a level of subjectivities there there as well, which is, you know, the, the home builder could come around and say, well, oh, that's because you've got the heating turned up or the window open or something.
1: To a certain extent, although when those individuals come to sell and if they have an EPC done and it's, um, you know, the sat rating is considerably different from the one that they were sold, they should be able to get some sort of compensation for that. But at the moment, there isn't a mechanism for that to happen. But that's the sort of stick that the National yeah. house need, and to a certain extent, they they do need to actually take control of this themselves and say, a bit like you would expect with any other industry, looking at you know scrutiny and, and uh, safety and all those other factors. You, you know, they they shouldn't need legislation; they should just be following the legislation that's there.
0: Sure. Doing, the, doing the right thing. Absolutely. I mean, that seems crazy, which sort of leads me on to our next area, really, which is the, the sort of um, UK homes are estimated to be 18% of the greenhouse gas we emit as a nation. And I was going to ask how we were getting along with that. But if we're building new homes that are um, Uh, Not as good as they say they are. Maybe we don't know how we're doing. Can we get to zero carbon from homes or do you think we're going to have to do some net zeroing in there where we'll have to do some offsetting as well? Or technically, should it be an easy win to get to completely net zero with our sort of 30 million homes housing stock that we've got in the UK?
1: Okay, so that's quite a complicated answer in a way. Uh, it was funny, actually, because the, the, way, the way I actually got into being uh, completely obsessed with the whole uh, zero carbon housing world was back in the late 90s, where there was a development in Nottinghamshire, which was uh, called Sherwood Energy Village, and that was actually the regeneration of an old coal field. Yeah. And the design there, the master plan, was based on uh, homes that, were the, that the performance of them was so high that they didn't need any heat source in them at all. They were super insulated and um, and high performance and and I suppose built on passive house principles. And it's really interesting because that technology and the ability to build to that specification has been around for decades. And as we know, there are many uh, Northern European countries that have been building passive house uh, approach for, again, for a very long time. So it actually doesn't have to be Uh, as complicated as it's made out it's it's almost like we're. it it really in terms of new build it's definitely a psychological approach and the two uh, factors that will influence more than anything else really are a move to modern methods of construction and more off-site construction and high performance manufacturing together with using you know basic principles of physics and just getting the building performance right and there's been so much modeling done that shows that that doesn't have to cost more but more importantly than that we've got you know obviously issues around our models where because land costs are so high and because private developers you know want to make considerable profits you kind of end up with this Uh, you know, we often talk about the um, the thirds model, where it's you know, a third is the land, a third is the the construction, and a third is the developer profit. However, that's carved up, and and there are different ways of looking at it. We've still got a disproportionate amount, of, you know, loan amount that goes into the actual house. If two thirds of it is going to the the landowner and the property developer, and only a third of the value is put into the construction of the property, there's something fundamentally wrong with the maths there. So, of of the, you know, if you're spending. Uh, three hundred thousand on a on a home. Two hundred thousand of that is probably going to others, and not in building the best possible house. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is, um, in terms of retrofit, no, we probably can't get to retrofitting to um absolute zero uh, of every property across uh, across the piece. There's all sorts of areas that again need to be considered um you know one of the big barriers at the moment is uh obviously homes that are in conservation areas or um heritage properties or older properties where uh there at the moment isn't a, a an opportunity to put external wall insulation on it and you can understand that obviously you don't yeah. necessarily want to cover up the best buildings but it could be a short-term measure there could be a way of actually cladding buildings just till we get the energy systems to where they need to be so that you then remove the cladding, say, after 10 years when you've got, you know, genuinely zero carbon, 100% renewable energy sources and then you don't have to worry so much about the leakage. But in the short term, we've got to find a compromise there.
0: Absolutely. Sarah, I mean, your knowledge on this is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's just so much, um, you know, forgive the pun, embedded knowledge um, as opposed to any embedded carbon. How on earth did you get into this sector? And you know, the listeners will be really interested to hear. You know, how did you, how, how did you get to your journey of um, saving the planet and reducing the impact of cities?
1: Well, yeah, a really sort of wiggly line, really, to be honest. Um I mean, I I had my own consultancy for nearly twenty years, actually. I sort of yeah. started uh, a year after I graduated, and that was a full service, marketing, management type consultancy. But the project I mentioned earlier at Sherwood Energy Village um, was an SRB two funded. Local authority and um, regional development led uh, projects and uh, there were all sorts of things going on it was actually about creating new employment opportunities in coalfields areas but one of the projects happened to be this, this low carbon thing and I'd never really come across the concept before I didn't really know what it meant but once I got a taste of that I just thought why aren't we doing everything this way it just yeah. seems so counterintuitive the way we were not only building houses but doing everything else in an unsustainable way so that was sort of around um 1999 actually I I can always uh, remember it because it was the year my daughter was born. So it was all like I had a, an awakening uh, environmentally at that point, thinking I, I really just want to focus now on things that will have that sort of outcome. And it almost felt a bit of seen the work I was doing that was to do with marketing and growth for companies that were actually damaging the, the, the planet. And I really yeah. just didn't feel comfortable about doing that anymore. So I kind of reinvented myself and you know, through a, 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 a sort of series of sort of life changes, Ended up relocating um, back to my home county of Gloucestershire and I uh, divested uh, my own business interests at that stage and then just started focusing on uh, working with organisations in the built environment who were either already green but couldn't position themselves correctly. It kind of became a hybrid sort of sustainability marketing approach, really all working for organisations who weren't, were finding that they weren't BID compliant. So I worked for all sorts of um, organisations, contractors and um, planning consultants and and architects. And in fact, the architectural firm I was working for actually offered me a role as managing director and the founder directors wanted to retire. So I kind of went off course a little bit for three years doing that. But in that process, again, got really into, it was very up from the fact that it clashed with the uh, global financial crisis, which wasn't so good when our order book flatlined. Yeah. Um, but it was a really good point at which to, you know, for somebody who wasn't an architect to look at the built environment and say, "How can we think about this differently? How can we, how can we talk to CEOs and CFOs in a language they'll understand, which isn't about carbon and um, uh, uh, energy cost, but is actually about business performance and." Yeah. Becoming, you know, morbid compliance and having um, increased business opportunities for doing the right things. So there were a few organisations around that. But as you probably know, it's been a long, long road trying to get to where yeah. we are now, where everybody gets it. And for years, uh, you know, I, I had various roles in either as a self-employed sustainability consultant or working at um, various organisations uh, where. Um, yeah, I have to say a lot of it was, was you know, pushing the boulder up the mountain yeah. uh, in terms of getting the messages through. We've now got the opposite problem. We've got the boulder in free fall coming down the side of the mountain and there aren't enough of us to hold on to it.
0: Exactly, yeah. So what does success look like and what's the biggest hurdle for you to get there with this project?
1: That That is such an interesting question because I think my, my personal battle is actually trying to maintain focus in areas... You know, because it's so easy to get distracted and try and be all things for all men in all uh, areas. I've done loads of work in the past in, in around MMC, and I'm really fascinated in how we, um, you know, transform the construction sector. It's so unproductive and so uh, far behind compared to other sectors. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done there. Which can also really accelerate our journey towards, you know, better performing buildings and reducing all sorts of outputs in all sorts of areas, really. But, but you know, the fundamental thing is, and where we started on this conversation is that the the very unglamorous side of it is actually yeah. retrofitting existing buildings, and the bigger impact really can be in that area in terms of saying, right, what we do to accelerate that progress i mean there's you know various figures bandied around like we have to retrofit two homes a minute in order to reach uh net zero by 2050 in terms yeah. of properties you know that is a monumental task and quite clearly you can't retrofit two buildings a minute but it's one of those challenges that i think if we can Crack it if we can, and in fact, pull the MMC mindset into housing retrofit. If we can industrialize the process, if we can yeah. learn how to optimize the outputs on different archetypes of homes and you know get out of this sort of phase of low numbers and uh, demonstrators and all of those sorts of things. But you know, we've got to kind of break out of that now and just say, Right, okay, here's a street. And we really do need the mechanism. So it shouldn't really matter what the tenure is. We can we can blitz through street by street yep. and have a mechanism to deal with it. Um, that's where we need to get to. And that will make a huge difference. And then there's other things obviously going on in terms of, you know, agriculture and food and transport yep. and all of those sorts of things and energy infrastructure, which need to happen at the same time. But success mm. for me, I think will be cracking that.
0: And budget. what's MMC? You mentioned that a couple of times. Uh, yeah, modern methods of construction. Oh, excellent. That's good yes. to know. Right, it's been absolutely amazing learning about this. Um, before we let you go, we have something which is the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame. And I asked listeners to put something in our Hall of Fame, which we're going to have a rummage around in and have a look at. Maybe future generations will check out the uh, Hall of Fame and see what was in there. What would you put in the First Mile Planet Save a Hall of Fame? We've had buckets of soil we've had bicycles i think david attenborough's in there we've had all sorts of things it can be a person personality it could be a item what would you put in there
1: Oh, I think well, if it if it was a person, it would have to be Greta Thunberg. I mean, she has done that. Girl has done more in a couple of years, and I, you know, I get goosebumps just thinking about the impact that she's had. You know, there there have been many of us and many bright minds who've been sort of working on this for decades and have failed to cut through in the way she has. Yeah. And, you know, she's got a lot of detractors and there are lots of people who've uh, really struggled with the idea of this, you know, young girl coming through. But she's been phenomenal. And I think, you know, and obviously David Attenborough is, is important in his way. But I think even he would give a nod to Greta and say she's achieved what he hasn't even achieved. You know, yeah. But it's like we've almost got this sort of force now coming forward. But but we need a major, major um, political leaders to break through as well. We need somebody to become the global ambassador at um, you know, president or prime ministerial level or whatever in a country to reset and just show what excellent looks like in a in a whole countrywide basis and really start to get everybody else following. Because we're still trapped in, you know, capitalist systems that actually work against what we're trying to do. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I think Greta Thunberg is is fantastic, and I'm delighted that you've um, put her in the uh, Hall of Fame. I'm also, at the same time, disappointed that it wasn't a piece of uh, six foot by four foot uh, insulation. (laughs) We'll we'll maybe let you have that as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
0: (laughs) It's been amazing talking to you. Before before we go, would you like to signpost listeners anywhere if they want to find out what you're doing, or if they want to find out more about your project any websites or social that you can sign post them to
1: yeah absolutely so uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn I, I, I post uh, most days sometimes several times a day if I'm particularly motivated so well worth finding me on there Sarah Daly and uh, Turner and Townsend will, will find me I think I've got actually nearly 17,000 followers now which is quite amazing not quite sure amazing. How that, uh, but you know some some of the posts have actually you know they quite frequently get between, I don't know, 20 and 80,000 uh, interactions. And I think my highest has been just over half a million. So um, these things, you know, sometimes if you hit the right tone and it's yeah. so. St- great, right. and I'm not saying this from a vanity point of view, but if people do follow me and they can share those and we can get some of these key messages out, that's really important. So I like to sort of think that I'm doing uh, quite an important job there with with uh, normalising some of the messaging. Um, the other uh, area, of course, Turner and Townsend, our website, we've got uh, plenty of information on there about the projects that we're involved in around the world, not necessarily on our sustainability specifically, but we've got some you know, pretty interesting projects there. Um, and and if anyone's interested, particularly in the social housing retrofit accelerator, uh, the website for that is uh, socialhousingretrofit.org.uk. And if you go into that, there's a whole range of resources that anybody can access, uh, including recorded masterclasses and all sorts of areas about retrofit. Uh, there's a webinar programme, so you can go to live webinars and ask questions if you've got them. They are orientated towards the social housing sector so yep. you know, if, if mrs brown wants to retrofit her, her home and wants to ask questions it might be a bit tricky but there's still information that's transferable um, perfect
0: points. that's perfect sarah that's amazing it's been fantastic having you on the show and um super interesting to learn all about retrofitting and decarbonizing homes so thank you so much for coming on the show you've been an amazing guest
1: oh thank you my pleasure thank you so much for inviting me.
0: I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five-O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero-carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.